And so we come to the end of our series. This is the last week in our mini-series on Ruth. And we've thought about how love is costly. We've thought about how love is kind. We've thought about how love is generous. And today we're thinking very much about the fact that love wins. And uh, this has been connected to our verse of the year. Uh, one of our verses of the year in John 13, 34 to 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And uh, throughout the course of this mini-series, we've been wanting to, uh, to let those thoughts about love make an impact on us as individuals and us as a community together. And today, that's no different. We're thinking on this theme of love wins. I'm excited about that because it's, it's such an important part of our lives as Christians to recognize that we live in victory. We live uh, worshiping a God who has won. And whether we've been a Christian for a short time or a Christian for longer, or even if we've never made that step to trust in God as saviour, it's something to consider today, something to refocus on. The fact that we are part of the victory side. And if you've missed some of the weeks in our Ruth series, we're just going to have a short video now that will bring us up to date with that. And after the video, uh, Paul is going to read the next part of it in Ruth chapter 4. The Book of Ruth. It's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. 
Chapter two begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up, and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these reasons. at verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. 
This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have, brought, I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town's records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. May God bless his word to us. Thanks, Alan. Thank you, Paul. And uh, we're going to pray as we move on in our service. So, Father God, we thank you for your word. And uh, we ask this morning that uh, you will speak to us through it. Lord, we're so grateful that we can open up in front of us without any fears at all. So, Lord, help us to uh, listen this morning to what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've got a, a love story. It's got a happy ending. And that's great, isn't it, to, uh, to come to that kind of love story. I don't know if you've got a favorite film or book, uh, love story, that uh, you like to uh, watch or read or listen to. Maybe it's one of the old classics like Pride and Prejudice or Jane Eyre. Maybe it's a more up-to-date story. But we love it when there is a happy ending to it. Boaz, in this story, gets the girl. Ruth gets a man. They've got a child together. Naomi's happy again. And that's a far cry from how we see Naomi in chapter 1. What about some of the elements of this story? What about how Boaz dealt with the kinsman redeemer? And indeed, what is a kinsman redeemer? Well, the Hebrew word for that is the word goel. And uh, like we saw the other week with the word hesed, it's used in different forms in the Bible. And we saw in the video a little of what it meant to fulfill that role of kinsman redeemer. It was there to protect families who had fallen on hard times. In this case, as we remember, there'd been a famine. Naomi's husband and her sons had died and they had no male heir in the family. 
And going back further to the Israelites first moving into the promised land, this law had been brought in not just to protect, but in the Jubilee year, that's every 50 years, the land would be returned to the original family. And that would preserve the family name as part of the inheritance. So when the purchase was made, if the um, Jubilee year was coming up soon, it might be at a lower cost. If the Jubilee year just happened, and there were almost 50 years left, it uh, would be quite a large cost to purchase that. And the key points about this kinsman redeemer were, firstly, that they should be related to the family. And they had the duty and privilege of bringing the family out of slavery, out of hardship, of buying back the land that had been forfeited in some way through the hard times. And this case, as we found out, it came together with Ruth, who had nobody to look after her. And there seemed in the story to be a packing order of who could offer this service as a kinsman redeemer. And Boaz recognises that there is somebody above him in the pecking order. Now, the other kinsman redeemer is not named. The narrator doesn't want to draw attention to him. He's keen to take the field and the profits that he could make from that. But when it comes to Ruth, he realises that some of those profits would have to go in caring for Ruth and for Naomi and any children that he and Ruth might have. So he backs away which leaves the way clear for Boaz to fulfill the role. He is the kinsman redeemer who will take on the protection of the family and provide safety and a future for Ruth. A love story with a happy ending. And you might ask, where is this story of, of a fairly ordinary family fit into the narrative of the Bible? Why has God chosen to put this story before us? Well, let's see where they fit in, in the context of the Old and the New Testament. Firstly, let's note the family succession from Ruth and Boaz through their son Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, who in turn was the father of David, King David. And we know that it's an important part of the Bible's genealogy that Jesus was also part of the family of David. And if you look at that genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, it traces the family line way back to Abraham, through Ruth and Boaz, through King David, and on to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. So in terms of God's promises to Abraham, right back in the book of Genesis, the story of Ruth fulfills what God had intended. Matthew tells us that there were 14 generations between them. Think of all the things that, that could have thrown that off course. Just in this story, so much could have been different. There's a lot of what-ifs you could ask. What if Naomi hadn't gone to Moab at the time of the famine? What if Ruth had gleaned in somebody else's field? What if that other nearer kinsman redeemer had taken up his option to purchase the field and take Ruth with it. But we find that God will fulfill his purposes, that God is sovereign in these aspects. And we trace the story of Jesus 
and redemption right through the Old Testament. We find this time and time again, that God is sovereign and God will keep his promises. And doesn't that fill you with confidence? That the God who we serve here at NCBC cannot be put off from achieving his purposes. And yes, sometimes things will will get in the way. Sometimes people will go off course. But God remains sovereign throughout it. And in many ways, we can see the story of Ruth and Boaz as a foreshadowing of the story of Jesus. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, the Goel for Ruth. Jesus was the kinsman redeemer of humanity and the world that God created. Now we said that a kinsman redeemer needed to be a family member. And God came to earth to be part of the human family. He became a man in the person of Jesus. And that was the only way that God's purposes could be fulfilled. For it to be through a man, through a human being. For a human to pay the price. And Jesus was that person. He became our kinsman redeemer in order to save mankind. We saw that the kinsman redeemer was able to buy the family out of slavery. And Jesus paid the price to redeem mankind from being slaves to sin. You think about that word slavery and being a slave to sin. Paul in in Romans 8 describes some of what that means. Those who live according to their sinful nature have their minds set on their natural desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And sin is the desire to follow worldly aspirations and leave God out of the equation. And people often talk about whether a certain action is sinful or it's not sinful. Is it okay to do this? Is it not okay to do that? And sometimes, unless God's word forbids something, it's not as simple as that. So the root of it all is whether God is part of someone's life. God is part of your life. Whether God is part of my life. Is God part of the equation in your life? Those who live in accordance with the Spirit, the passage says, have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Or is he not? Those who live according to their sinful natures have their minds set on natural desires. And if we read the first few verses of that chapter, we find out that those who are not in Christ are like slaves, but that Jesus came to be a sin offering. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature 
but according to the Spirit. In his death on the cross, Jesus, as kinsman redeemer, paid the price for sin to rescue humanity from slavery to it. Jesus, as well as with Boaz, was motivated by love to bring about a rescue package. And we can see the parallels between the two stories and also the main theme of what we're saying today in that love wins. And it may be that uh, as people who've been part of a church like NCBC for a while, we've, we've heard that many times before. Or it may be that this morning you're tuning in as somebody who's not considered that before. But I'd like us to take a fresh look at the fact that love wins today. And it would be great if the biblical truths that we talk about make a difference to the way we live our lives in the context of circumstances around us. Whatever situation we're in, in our day-to-day -day lives in 2020 in Norwich, love wins. We know the end of the story. We know what happened around 2,000 years ago on a hillside in Palestine has changed the course of history and guaranteed a wonderful eternity. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, right at the end of our Bible, and worked through some of the meanings, some of the imagery, much of it linked to the Old Testament, you will know something of what the future holds and that love wins out. Jesus has won the victory. And in 1 Corinthians, we, we hear this, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But what is that victory? Well, certainly for most people, we look as individuals to the certain hope of living with Jesus, of spending eternity with him. On Thursday this week, we, we said goodbye to our dear sister, Bettina. And in that service, we were able to celebrate her life, but also the fact that she is now with her Lord and Saviour. So there's that individual element to Jesus' victory, but it's much more than that. Jesus' death and resurrection was an earth-shattering event that meant that the whole power of sin and death, anything that brings about pain and misery in the world around us, all injustice, all broken relationships, all poverty, all of that are defeated. Love wins. Let's look into the future through uh, the pages of Revelation chapter 4. We see a throne before us. A throne signifies a ruler, one who is sovereign, the one who reigns. And we get this amazing picture of God on the throne in Revelation chapter 4. It describes him as having the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And there's a rainbow resembling an emerald encircling the throne. God is on the throne. God holds the key to the future. God has the victory. And as the book of Revelation plays out, we find out how that victory takes place. So for those who are part of God's family, those who are in Christ, we know that we are on the winning side. How does that impact 
our daily life, knowing that we are on the winning side. For those who are part of God's family, we know that he sits on the throne and is sovereign. How does that impact our daily life? If God is on the throne, it means that other things are not. COVID is not on the throne. It will be defeated. The economy that we hear so much about is not on the throne. That situation in our lives, that person or situation that causes us grief or sleepless nights at the moment is not on the throne. God is on the throne. And so often we can get drawn into what Satan wants us to believe about the world around us. Things that can crowd into our lives because it seems that they're taking control of the world around us. But as we've seen in the story of Ruth, God's purposes will not be thwarted. He is in control. And sometimes we feel unable to see through the worries and challenges of our world and recognize that on the other side, there is God on the throne. And around that throne is a rainbow, a sign of God's covenant with the earth and with humanity. So we can set our focus on God. It's very tempting to focus uh, on the things that are wrong, isn't it? Look at Naomi chapter 1. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. You can feel her pain, can't you, through those circumstances that affected her life. I wonder if she would have been any different if she could have seen how the story played out. We can set our focus on God. Yes, we, we may not understand all that's going on around us, but God is on the throne and he has won the victory through what Jesus did on the cross. Of course, we must expect trials. The Bible is very clear about that. We live in this period that has been labelled already, but not yet. The victory on the cross has been won, but hasn't yet reached its fulfilment. And some have tried to draw a parallel between that already, but not yet, and the events in the Second World War. After the events of D-Day, 6th of June, 1944, it became obvious that the Allies would win the war. However, it wasn't until VE Day, 8th of May, 1945, almost a year later, that victory in Europe was celebrated. And in that intervening year, there were still battles, there were still casualties, even though it was a case of when the war would end, not if the war would end. So in this already but not yet period, we're still in a battle. Paul's letter to the Ephesians tells us that we need to be equipped by putting on the full armour of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. But if we're in a battle, we enter it knowing for those in Christ that the victory is won and the victory is secure. If you want to find out more about what it means to be in Christ, our next sermon series, starting in two weeks' time, 
we'll explore this more fully and I would encourage you to uh, tune in and listen to that. But just in closing, if we move on one more chapter to in Revelation to chapter 5, we have another picture of the throne. This time, there is a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. And they sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Love wins. It was God's love for us in coming to earth as part of humanity, as our kinsman redeemer. It was Jesus' love in going to the cross to secure this victory. And as we live in the already but not yet, we long to live a life of victory with the God of love on the throne. And uh, earlier on, we, we read some verses from Romans chapter 8. And our challenge this week is to spend some time allowing the truth of God's victory to sink into your life. It may be that you look afresh at uh, Romans chapter 8 and more of that. Verses like, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Love wins. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Love wins. And that's the message today, that we can live a life of victory. Some of you might remember a song that was written in the 1980s by Graham Kendrick. For this purpose, Christ was revealed to destroy all the works of the evil one. Christ in us has overcome. So with gladness we sing and welcome his kingdom in. And then we used to split into men and women. Over sin, he is conquered. Over death, victorious. Over sickness, he is triumphed. Hallelujah, he has triumphed. Jesus reigns over all. We come this morning in victory and worship a God of love who has won that victory through Jesus Christ. Amen. Father God, we thank you for these words. We pray that uh, by your spirit they will have an impact on the lives that we lead 
in victory through Jesus. Amen.